Let me express to you in colloquial terms what we just heard in Psalm 93. Jehovah impressively exercises the function of a king throughout the entire ever-expanding universe. As king, he is miraculously lifted up above all things. His majesty and power should cause us to behold him with unparalleled wonder and awe. In fact, his power and majesty cover him with strength and might. He is, in the widest possible sense, the king of all the host of the universe, sovereignly ruling over all creatures and beings, through whom he executes his sovereign will and his eternal purposes. He has all sovereignty in himself as the sole and absolute Lord of the universe. Not only that, but it is that very strength and power that keep the earth secure in its existence. Because of who Jehovah is, the earth has most certainly been established as Jehovah's kingdom. And no human or natural disorder can ever overtake or disrupt his reign as he rules over all the heavens above and over all the works of his hands on the earth and over all the depths of the seas as well. Jehovah's laws and decrees continuously and constantly testify to his unapproachable holiness, warning everyone that through him truth is established to guide our lives into eternity. The throne of Jehovah has been around for a very long time, ever since he created the universe. That's what I'm hoping to convince you of this morning as we consider the brevity and conciseness of Psalm 93. So let me begin by asking you to consider something in light of what we just read. Since Jehovah reigns in majesty over the universe that he created, what are you not willing to allow him to be sovereign over? What things do you believe that Jehovah is powerless to touch and control? The freedom of the will of any human being? The sinful choices that people make? When it comes to human free will and their sinful choices, is it just a standoff between those things and Jehovah? In the Hebrew language, there are only 41 words in Psalm 93, and it speaks wondrously deep truths with conciseness and simplicity about the person of Jehovah God. And so I want to consider first this morning what the author means by using the word Jehovah for the Lord. The four Hebrew letters YHWH are transliterated as Yahweh 
or Jehovah, and they composed the proper biblical name of the God of Israel. That name appears in every Old Testament book except Esther and Ecclesiastes. But you must know something, too. For the Jew, Yahweh is the ineffable name of God. It's the indescribable, inexpressible, undefinable, unutterable, marvelous, wonderful, breathtaking, astonishing name of the living God. To the Jew, that name Yahweh carried with it ideas that cannot or should not be expressed with spoken words because the person that that name identifies is inherently incomprehensible. That name musters ideas that are too great, too complex, too abstract to be communicated adequately. And that's why we aren't sure how to translate the name Yahweh. There's been a lot of critical speculation as to what that name means, and we've made a lot of attempts at it. Let me give you a few of the ideas of what it looks like to translate the name Yahweh. He's the one that brings all things into being. He's the giver of existence and the creator of life without whom there would be no life. He is the one who brings what is to pass. He is the one ever coming into manifestation as the God of redemption. He is the one who asserts his being as he chooses while reigning as the king of the universe. Most now have settled on a name and a definition that's not quite as clear. The one who is the absolute and self-consistent, unchangeable one, whoever exists. In other words, I am present is what I am. That's what his name means. And the brevity and conciseness of this psalm are significant because that's exactly how the creation account in Genesis 1 is described, with brevity and conciseness so that every reader can understand it without getting lost in scientific details. I want you to consider the amazing brevity and conciseness used in Genesis 1 which will help us understand better the brevity of Psalm 93. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of the story, God, the God of the rest of the story, created the universe. This great forever expanding universe is but the creature of the one creator, Jehovah God. Now, how else should someone go about describing that which is absolutely complex and detailed, but with brevity and conciseness? Here's an example of why it's important to reflect on the brevity and conciseness of Psalm 93. Let me give you an example. Let me give you the scientific description of a single hydrogen atom. 
A molecule of hydrogen is the simplest possible molecule consisting of two protons and two electrons held together by electrostatic forces. That's 21 words. That's the simple truth of a molecule of hydrogen. If I were to give you a more scientific detail, I'm asking, would it help you to get any closer to understanding the basic simple truth of a molecule of hydrogen? If you were to Google, like I did, description of a single hydrogen molecule, you'd find information like this there. Hydrogen's isotopes and their mass numbers. How hydrogen forms a multitude of chemical compounds with other elements and how all those atoms link together to form that specific compound you'd find the ionization potential or the melting point of molecular hydrogen. You discover what wave equations are. You discover the relationship between spherical and rectangular coordinate systems. You'd find the equations used to determine its quantum numbers and its density distributions. The various wave functions to determine its most probable radial positions. And you know what? I don't know anything about what I just said to you. I could give you that information that only a very few minds could begin to grasp, but that wouldn't make my understanding of a molecule of hydrogen any clearer. To tell you just this much about a molecule of hydrogen would take hundreds of pages. How well should you describe a truth that is unutterable and indescribable and incomparable, but with brevity and conciseness so that every reader can get what the author is saying? Here's the real clincher for me regarding the beauty of the brevity and conciseness of the, of the Hebrew language. Genesis chapter 1, the entire chapter, in the original language, only uses 76 root words. Starting with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 76 root words in chapter 1 to say, a divine act of creative power brought this entire material universe into being. There's some implications there, of course. The universe had a beginning. It was not self-existent from all eternity. The material universe, all of it, was created by the act of an intelligent, magnificent, almighty, eternal being. That being who created the universe is Jehovah God. And so I'm asking you to consider what would have been a more appropriate beginning to help us understand that what God has made from nothing is absolutely his and is at his complete disposal. And just like the language of Genesis 1-1, Psalm 93 describes in simplicity and conciseness and brevity a most complex idea about the Jehovah of the universe. And that's only the first verse of Genesis 1. 
think about trying to describe the complexity of verse 2 if you were to do it in scientific terms. In Genesis 1-2, when God created the earth, it was without form and void. I'll give you the Hebrew brevity for without form and void. It was tohu, tohu, bohu. There you go. When God created the earth, it was formlessness. It was confusion. It was chaos. It was unreality. It was emptiness. It was a trackless waste that served no purpose. It was absolutely a nothing burger. I got that from Sheila. (laughs) It was an earth that was formless. It was without order and chaotic. And the rest of verse 2 says, And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew language suggests that the oceans were so deep and so dark and obscure that it looked like they were hiding. Then Jehovah began to bring order into a chaotic world by the power and majesty of his being, and that's what we should understand about Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. When we talk about God being everlasting or eternal, there are other assumptions that we need to make because of this attribute of eternality. For God to be everlasting or eternal, he must be spirit, which it says in John chapter 4. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But God is a special kind of spirit. He's a spirit living from himself. For God to be spirit means there's no property of matter that can be ascribed to him. There's no weight, no parts, no bulk, no form. He doesn't have a body. He has no material dimension by which he can be measured or contained. So he is also limitless. As spirit, he is the fountain of all being and the source of all temporal and eternal life within himself so that he is not caused by or dependent on any being outside of himself. That's an important thing to remember as we continue on. And therefore he is perfectly self-sufficient, having no need of any being outside of himself. Jehovah's everlastingness then means he has duration without beginning or end. Because he is eternal, he is present at all times and in all places. If Jehovah is from everlasting and exists forever and ever, he is the only self-existent being who has no beginning or end, no period of growth. And because Jehovah is spirit, he also transcends all limitations regarding time and space. 
There's nothing within him or apart from him which in any way limits him in his essence or his attributes, in his virtues or his presence or in any of his purposes. In Jehovah's attributes of eternality and limitlessness, limitlessness, the attribute of God's immutability, unchangeableness is implied. His immutability is necessarily resulting from his absolute perfection. Listen, if he were to change, it must be either to the better or to the worse. He cannot change to the better, for that would imply past imperfection. He cannot change to the worse, for that would cease to make him perfect. He must therefore remain invariably the same and unchangeable. So God is unchanging in his person, in his essence, in his attributes, and in his will. God cannot change in his desire or purposes. God being immutable means that God is unchangeable either by the process of time or some kind of external events acting upon him or by gaining some kind of internal knowledge that he didn't already have. So Tony's going to show you a series of slides now to help you grasp that visually. I've truncated a lot of theology for you, so let me briefly review what I just said. Because God is spirit, he is eternal. He has duration without beginning or end. He is also infinite. There is no limitation to him. And he is immutable. He is unchanging. Each one of these three characteristics define the essential properties of Jehovah's attributes. The essential properties of his attributes are his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. So applying those three characteristics to his attributes, he is eternal in his being in his wisdom, eternal in his power, eternal in his holiness, eternal in his justice and his goodness, and eternal in his truth. And he is also infinite in his being, in his wisdom. He's infinite in his power, in his holiness, in his justice and his goodness and his truth. He is unchangeable. He is immutable in his being in his wisdom, unchangeable in his power and his holiness, his justice and his goodness and his truth. So I know I've gone into a fair amount of theological detail about God's attributes here. Believe me, I kept deleting stuff. And I'm doing that because I'm laying the foundation for you to see in a moment that because Jehovah is eternal, and limitless and unchanging, nothing that any creature does has any impact on the eternal designs of Jehovah. And so then we come to the verses 3 and 4 that will help define what I just said. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have 
lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. I have a pretty good library at home, plus I have Logos 8 on my computer, which is embarrassingly overloaded with commentaries. And in searching out the meaning here to floods and to the voices of the roaring floods being lifted up, I discovered that virtually every commentary written previous to 1900 and just right after 1900 suggests that the reference is to be understood both naturally and metaphorically regarding the seas and the floods and the waters. The natural reference is to God's power and ability to control the ungoverned forces of his created world. Scripture repeatedly tells us of God's ability to calm the raging seas. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Psalm 65, 7 identifies God as the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 107, 29 claims of Yahweh, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The metaphorical reference to the seas, to the voices of the waters, can also refer to the persecutions and afflictions of God's enemies who oppose his church. This occurs in Scripture as well. Psalm 89, 8 through 10 has both references in the same two verses. It says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Egypt in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with mighty arms. Psalm 65.5 has a reference to both nature and nations, as well as to God's power and strength. O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. But what does it mean for Jehovah to still the tumult of the peoples? Last week, Travis mentioned that Psalm 93 fits within Book 4 of the Psalter, which are Psalms 90 to 106. The most repeated theme in Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106, is God's anger toward his wicked enemies and their sinful rebellion. And so whether you take the reference to mean the natural swelling of the raging of the seas or take it to mean the tumultuous raging of people, the idea is the same. None of the raging seas or the raging peoples has any impact on Jehovah God, who sits on his throne reigning in majesty and power over the entire universe. He is utterly unaffected. And why would he be considering who he is? 
It's Psalm 2 that really helps us to see that Jehovah reigning on his throne in heavens forever and ever not only remains unaffected by the tumultuous rage of the nations, but here's the clincher. He's using their rage to accomplish his eternal decrees. There are really two kinds of opposers of God. And their revulsion toward his reign stems from certain illusions that plague them about their supposed freedoms. You know the one, that would be atheists. They lack a belief in the existence of any kind of deity. But there's another group of God opposers known as mythotheists. They are literally God haters. The thing about mythotheists, though, is that they don't doubt that God exists. They reject the way that God rules based on their own sense of moral outrage. They struggle with the way Jehovah reigns in the world. They believe in God, but they don't like how he runs things. And Psalm 2 tells us why Jehovah is indifferent to their rage. Psalm 2, 1 through 5, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Rage is generally a noun, but it's used as a verb here. Listen to how the language tells us what their rage looks like to Jehovah. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew, uses a really interesting word for the Hebrew word here. The Greek word is an equestrian term. It describes the way high-spirited horses act. Neighing and snorting, stomping, prancing, shaking their manes. They act with impatience and are high-spirited. That's how Jehovah sees the rage of misotheists who don't like the way he's reigning. Here in the Hebrew of Psalm 2, the rage of the nations means that they throng tumultuously. They make a real disturbance by making a vehement, emotional, and overwhelming noise. In fact, they sound very much like the vehement churning of the oceans. Is Jehovah worried about all their rage and their vehement activity? Are any of his eternal decrees remotely impacted by their rage? No. Psalm 2 continues, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Jehovah derides them. He mocks them. He jeers at them while he sits on his majestic throne. You know why? Because these people who rage against God and his anointed believe that their rage will defeat God's purposes and his will. 
They believe they're going to run God and his religion out of town and ultimately win the day. But it will end in emptiness. But here's the real reason it's empty and vain rage. Think about this. Because the outcome of their rage cannot achieve what they believe it will achieve. Jehovah isn't going to be dethroned by the actions of angry men. He's not going to be confused as to how we should handle all the rustle and the noise. See, the vanity isn't simply trying to go up against Jehovah, not knowing that it's impossible. That is vain. But there's a worse vanity. It's worse to try to conspire to achieve some preconceived end that you have in mind without realizing God is going to use your actions and your hatred against him to achieve an entirely different end he's already established in his decrees in eternity past. That, my friends, is the epitome of the futility of raging against God who reigns in majesty and power. And that's exactly the way God used the hatred of the people who plotted to crucify Christ. You can read it in Acts chapter 4 and Psalm 2. They thought they were finally getting rid of the problem named Jesus. And in reality, God was using their sinful hatred and rebellion to accomplish his eternal goal of crucifying his son for the forgiveness of sins for every person that believes. And so when I think about this, this is what it means to me. We need to put to rest the misunderstanding so many people have about the freedom of the will. Because our human will can never be free enough to be able to achieve the end we think our freedom has to achieve when God is reigning with majesty and power. This is what Charles Spurgeon said about these two verses in Psalm 93. He said, The ungodly are all foam and fury, noise and bluster during their little hour. And then the tide turns of a storm is hushed, and we hear no more of them, while the kingdom of the eternal abides in the grandeur of its power. Jehovah is completely unaffected. He has decreed what shall be. Can you imagine believing that your rage is going to overcome Jehovah's eternal decrees, which he has established in his word and his Messiah from eternity past? Here's the amazing thing, though. They're so committed to raging over his commands and his power. They're not going to be slaves to righteousness. They're not going to be yoked into submitting to God's will and decrees. They're not going to be submissive to their creator who owns them, who gives them life and breath in all things. Folks, we're seeing it everywhere. Now, the prideful plotting of men 
who seek to build their own kingdom and rule in this world. They work overtime to cast away God's values and his commands. That thronging, tumultuous rage is going on all around us. You witness the rage against Jehovah, their preference for their own rules about truth and sex and marriage and family and what to teach children and gender and history and even reality. They long for the freedom to commit full-blown abominations as they parade down city streets and in the classrooms as teachers of our children screaming for attention like little gods. Just Friday, Judge Samuel Alito finally spoke openly about the impact of the Roe versus Wade decision that was overturned by the Supreme Court. This is what he said. That overturning continues to stir a growing hostility toward religion in the West. The problem that looms is not just their indifference to religion. It's not just their ignorance about religion. There's also growing hostility to traditional religious beliefs that are contrary to the new moral code that is ascendant in so many sectors of this country. Folks, even foreign leaders addressing the United Nations claim the Supreme Court's decision to abolish Roe versus Wade was comparable to the Russian attack on Ukraine. and said it was a global assault on democracy and the freedom of people. And in 2022, folks, the rage is on. Well, Psalm 93.4 has the answer. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. The Lord is mightier because he resides unaffected on his throne in the highest heavens and is high above all the human denials of Jehovah's majesty and glory and magnificence and authority and power. He is mightier than all the noise of the tumultuous waves of the sea and superior to the haters who are convinced their rage can stand against him. Psalm 93 says, Jehovah God is magnificent in power. He wears his superior power and strength like a belt around his waist. Nothing can stand against him. It is through his unchallengeable strength and power that he saves us. And that is the cause of our praising and exalting him here Sunday mornings. But it's also that strength and power that he possesses that causes Jehovah to mock and belittle those who assume they can stand against his power and authority. But I want to be sure we're putting everything under the umbrella of Jehovah's majestic reign this morning that belong there. I want to be sure we consider the extent of God's miraculous power 
and majesty as the reigning king of the ever-expanding universe. What does that mean, then? I think it means that the spiritual darkness that drives this hatred for the Christian religion and for God and his kingdom that's founded on the rejection of Jehovah's power and majesty and is nothing more than a fool's commitment to folly, according to Psalm 2, is all rooted in the sovereign will of God. If indeed we believe that Jehovah reigns over the entire universe. That's the challenge for us. What things are we not willing to fit under the umbrella? You can't ignore this truth in fully understanding the proclamation of the sovereign power and universal rule of Jehovah God in Psalm 93. I want you to understand my meaning here. God doesn't force people to sin. Their own sinful natures and choices force them to sin. And the reason Jehovah reigns and is clothed with majestic power whose throne has been established in eternity past, is because God in his sovereignty uses that sin to bring about his decreed end. That's power. That's majesty. That's authority. That's reigning in the universe. Scripture clearly says that the personal sins of men are always the motivation for their actions and that God often ordains and decrees those sinful actions. And in that decreeing of their sinful actions, Scripture never holds God accountable. Men are held accountable. And in all of that sovereign decreeing God is bringing to pass, God remains absolutely good and wise and holy and just. So, Non-response to the gospel and unbelief and the tumultuous rage of the nations is rooted in the will of God just as is belief. Human beings do not believe in God by their own efforts, but as a result of the outreaching and predestinating grace of God. It is God who initially confronts the individual with the truth of his reality. Faith is first and foremost then a result of the act of God that elicits the human response to God. It is for this reason that the historical creeds of Christianity never left human failure to respond to the gospel as a mystery. Listen to what the Westminster Confession said. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Consequently, those who choose not to believe God's truth are not merely mistaken, They've not merely made an intellectual error in judgment. They are wrong. They cannot be right about anything else they do or believe if at the very core of their belief system they think that Jehovah God, as revealed in the Scriptures, isn't true. 
The last verse of Psalm 93 says that God's laws and sovereign decrees are a testimony, a reminder and a warning to all that Jehovah is a God whose truth and holiness are the foundation of reality. This is what it says. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. What God has decreed is trustworthy, permanent, and worthy of our faithful commitment. His laws and decrees are confirmed and established because of who Jehovah is. To be separated from the knowledge that Jehovah is majestic and powerful in his sovereign strength in every area of his universe is to be separated from the truth itself. And to be separated from the truth about Jehovah is to be mired in spiritual darkness, falsehood, and corruption. It means that all of our actions that proceed from this mindset have hanging about them the stench of death and futility. Let me close by quoting something that A.W. Pink said about the sovereignty of God. He said, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. His government is exercised over inanimate matter, over the brute beasts, over the children of men, over angels good and evil, and over Satan himself. No revolving world, no shining of star, no storm, no creature moves, no actions of men, no errands of angels, no deeds of devil, nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. That's what it means to reign as the king. Here is a foundation, he said, of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, men or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. And this is why Psalm 93 is such an amazing and important psalm, critical to our proper thinking and understanding about the person of God. Pray with me. Father, your words in Psalm 93 are so challenging to us. I pray that we would consider them and reflect deeply on them thanking you for who you are and the power and the majesty and the glory that you possess. Father, as we continue to worship now, help, the, help us to see the truth of the words and the songs we're going to sing. We ask for these things in Christ's name. Amen.